Well, let me ask you to take your Bibles and let's turn to the book of Luke, Luke chapter number 8, Luke chapter number 8. Two weeks ago, we spent our time together considering and meditating on the truth that our God is a sovereign God who rules over all. And last week, we continued our study in that same vein, and this morning, I want to do so once again, taking up a similar theme. We have been in these first weeks of the new year really wrestling with some foundational realities, digging back down to bedrock truth that anchors our souls, and we want to be reminded of truths today. The text that I've asked you to turn to is actually a very special one for me and Christy. Uh, The Lord gave us this passage during an especially difficult time in our life, years ago, especially for Christy, years ago as she suffered a miscarriage. Um, This was back before Karis was born. Um, Christy's actually gone through two of these miscarriages. We know others who have suffered other losses. But during that season, this was a text that the Lord used in our life and really anchored our thinking in a very, very difficult time. And over the years, the Lord has given me numerous opportunities to share these truths with other people, and I thought it would be fitting this morning to share these truths with all of you. Let's just take a look at the short text. It's just four verses found in Luke chapter 8 that we're going to give our attention to this morning, and we'll be in other passages of Scripture as well. But four verses, beginning at verse 22. Let me read the text. You follow along. One day... Christ got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out, and as they sailed, he fell asleep, and a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and they woke him, saying, Master, Master, we we are perishing, And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. He said to them, where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, who then is this? That he commands even winds and water, and they obey him. If I was to boil this short passage down into one simple statement, I think that statement would be this. Friends, you and I must live out the faith we claim to possess. We need to understand that claims to faith are just that until life gets hard. And then we demonstrate whether or not we believe what we've been saying all along. You see, when winds blow and and waves start to swamp the ship, that's when we find out, do I trust the one who is in control of winds and waves? Or have I just been singing the songs and Attending the gatherings, do I really believe what I say? I believe. 
in light of that statement then, I think we have to ask ourselves some, some introductory questions if we're going to make sense of this passage. And the first thing I would, would ask is simply this, what, what is faith? What, what is faith? I mean, if we're talking about living it out and, and claiming to have it, then we need to wrestle with what it is. I mean, certainly we understand that, 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 that faith can, can be a broad concept. Uh, for instance, we use language like the faith when we talk about things that we believe. Uh, Jude actually commands believers in Christ to, to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Certainly then, we understand that the faith, if we're talking about it broadly like this, the faith refers to that body of truth delivered by God to us, which all true believers must affirm, embrace, and submit to. When we talk about the faith, we're talking about that which we must believe because we have received it. It has been given to us. It's the body of truth that we hold on to. Not only do we, when we wrestle with what the faith is, we, we have to ask ourselves a second question. What does it mean then to, to have or to possess faith? And that, if that's the faith, then what does it mean to have faith? To possess faith. There have been many attempts made to define faith over the generations, but one of the best I have ever found is also one of the simplest definitions of faith. The definition simply says that faith is taking God at His word. What He says, we trust. What He says, we believe with wholehearted, whole life acceptance. Not just mental assent, not just words. In other words, we could say it this way, when God speaks through His Word, faith simply believes what He says and then orders my life accordingly. That's what faith is. I believe what He says and I order my life in accordance with what He says, in submission to what He says. Three times throughout the New Testament, the phrase, Abraham believed God, is used to explain this believing nature of, of genuine faith. It, it's found in Romans chapter 4 and verse 3, if you want to take notes, Romans chapter 4 and verse 3, it's in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 6, and in James chapter 2 and verse 23. Romans 4, Galatians 3, James 2, find this statement, Abraham believed God and friends, it is that belief in the Word of God that God counted to Abraham for righteousness. You read the story of Abraham and it is astounding. He wasn't just making claims to believe and he was certainly not perfect, but God had promised him a son. Remember that? And then God said, now you take that son, your only son. That's the language of faith. He had another son. You take your only son, the only one I promised you. And you climb a mountain. And you take a knife. And you offer him to me as a burnt offering. 
I don't know if you put yourself in Abraham's shoes. What it would have been like, the text tells us, to rise early in the morning. Of all days, I think I would have wanted to sleep in that day. But he rose early. And he got his servants and his donkey and the wood and a knife and fire and his son. And he set out. And yet you hear the words of faith when he speaks to his servants at the foot of the mountain. I and the lad are going up to worship and we will return to you. Abraham didn't just claim to believe God. The New Testament tells us that Abraham raised that knife not waiting for an angelic intervention. He raised that knife believing he would have to plunge that knife into his son to obey his God. And the New Testament tells us because he considered that God was able even to raise him from the ashes and give him his son back because his son was the son of promise. Abraham believed God. Friends, this is what it means to take God at His word and then order my life accordingly. Without question, then, faith is absolutely indispensable when it comes to the children of God. Elsewhere, the writer of Hebrews put it this way. You know this language in Hebrews chapter 11. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. I cannot please God apart from faith. If then, friends, faith is that essential, I think it's also important for us to consider at least one more introductory question. And how about, how about this question? Where does faith then come from? What is the faith? It's that body of truth we must believe. What is faith? It is actually submitting to, believing what he said, and submitting myself to it. Okay, then how do I get it? Where does faith come from? The Apostle Paul actually answered this key question plainly and succinctly in a single verse. Romans chapter 10 and verse 17. Listen to what Paul wrote there when he said, So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. You see, according to this verse, faith comes from, from hearing, knowing, and obeying the accurately interpreted words of God. It is actually the word itself that produces the faith in the people of God. Clearly then, genuine faith is inextricably linked to a knowledge of and to a submission to God's Word. And particularly, Paul references here, the Gospel of Jesus Christ. I hear what God says, and His Word works in me. Faith to believe it. Isn't it interesting that when we find ourselves in a season of doubting, how often one of the first things that goes is our 
our Bible reading, and our church attendance, and our gathering with the people. In fact, we find our appetite for spiritual things seems to to go. And so the very thing that was given to us to produce this faith we're struggling with is the very thing we avoid and wonder why we're doubting. Wonder why we're struggling. Hmm. Far too often, God's professing people think that they can can claim faith in God without accurate knowledge of and and faithful obedience to His words. I, I, I believe in God, but I don't really submit to this. I don't really need this. I don't really care about this. I don't really need to obey this. I can, I can have one without the other, and yet the Scriptures are plain. No, this is a package deal. It comes together. And friend, the Scriptures teach that this is an utter impossibility to separate the two. You see, friends, hear me. It is not the claim of faith that makes it valuable. It is the object of faith that makes it valuable. Faith is not valuable because I say I have it. Faith is valuable because of who I'm believing. Who I'm trusting. And notice, we don't put our faith in one another. And we don't put our faith in an organization. We don't put our faith in an individual except for that one who is our maker and king. Our faith is valued because He is the object, and what He has said is what anchors our souls. My friends, with those foundational thoughts firmly in hand, then let's go ahead and dig into the text. We just had four verses in Luke 8 I want to go to here, and I want us to look at it. And two big thoughts, two more questions I'd ask you from this particular passage this morning, okay? The two questions I want to ask you from this text are these. Question number one, when God speaks, do you listen? When God speaks, do you listen? And secondly, when God works... Are you surprised? When God works, are you surprised? I want to use the balance of our time this morning to dig into these two questions one at a time. So let's go ahead and begin with this big question. When God speaks, do you listen? Do I listen? I think from even a simple cursory reading of the text, it's clear that our Lord is addressing a problem in His disciples. We, we see that in the passage that we read a moment ago. Look back at verse 25. What did He ask them? He, he said to them in verse 25, where is your, here's our word, faith. Oh, you, you've, you've made a lot of claims, fellas. You've been following along, and you've been doing the stuff, and you've been sacrificing, and now it's hard. Where's your faith? Here in this verse, our Lord addresses the the, the crux of the issue. You see, a, a trial had arisen. In this case, it was a storm. But the disciples' response to the trial revealed a major flaw in what we might call the armor of their faith. There's a chink in the armor. Maybe we might say this was a gaping hole because the Lord says to them, Do you believe it all? I mean, where where is this that you say you've had? Christ had 
spoken clearly about the events of that day. The beginning of our text, he actually told them what was going to happen that day. But apparently his disciples did not listen to his words very carefully. As you've already seen, genuine faith is inseparably linked to the knowledge of and submission to the words of, of God. In light of this reality, I think there's two convictions we have to have, and we're going to look back at what Jesus had said to them as we consider the convictions, okay? So what are the convictions we have to have if that's true, what we've considered thus far? Well, conviction number one, the problem is never with God's Word. The problem's never with the Word or the one who spoke it. You see, the problem in this story is not that Jesus had failed to tell His disciples all that they needed to know. He had told them all that they needed to know that day. In fact, before they launched out in the ship, Christ had already clearly told His disciples, here's His words, that they were going to the other side of the lake. Did you see that? Verse 22. One day He got into a boat and, with His disciples and He said to them, let us go across and drown in the middle. Let us go across, but we're not going to make it. What were His words? We're going on a cruise across the lake, and fellas, we're going to the other side. The word of the Creator! We're going from here to there, and we're going to make it. So they set out on the word of Christ. You see, friends, their master, their Lord, the God of creation, had told them what was going to happen. They were going to the other side of the lake. Ultimately, that is exactly what happened. In all reality, the disciples were in were no danger of dying in the storm. But rather than trusting the word of the Lord, they, they were a lot like us, right? They, they doubted. They doubted. This leads to a second conviction. We said, first of all, the first conviction is the problem is never with God's Word. But friends, can we also agree that the problem is always with us? The problem of faith is never with the Word. It is always with us. Just take note of the passage again. Verses 23 and 24, what does it tell us there? And as they sailed, he fell asleep, and a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger, and they went and woke him, saying, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. You see, friends, the disciples failed to take Christ at His word, to believe what He had told them would happen. We're going to the other side. They, they allowed their, their circumstances to dictate their response to His words. And don't we do the same thing? Troubles come, and we... We doubt. Trials arise and we, we make excuses for our sin. Difficulties increase and we even go as far as to blame Him. In Mark's record of this story, we actually find that the disciples even doubted that the Lord truly loved and cared for them. This is how far their doubt went. 
In Mark's record, we read this in verses 37 and 38 of chapter 4. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion, and they awoke him, and they said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? You don't even care about us. You're just sleeping back there. Wow. Don't our hearts go there when life gets hard? This is why the songwriter once wrote, does Jesus care? Does Jesus care? Oh, yes, he cares. I know he cares. His heart is touched with my grief. And yet, life gets hard and trials come. There's a bend in the road that we didn't see coming, and what do we do? Do you even care about us? Oh, yes, he cares. You and I know that he had never stopped loving or caring for the disciples. But they felt like he had, right? They thought that he had. They they thought he was asleep, and he he wasn't paying attention, and he didn't know what they needed. And, And they sound an awful lot like the prophets of Baal, right? Let's cut ourselves, let's shout a little louder. Maybe he's off hunting. Maybe he's actually asleep. Wow, how Baal-like is your worship and mine sometimes? He's sleeping. He didn't see this coming. He wasn't watching out for me. Friends, the point I think of the text is plain. that The problem is never with him, but the problem is always with us. Now, if that's true, and it is, that the, the problem is never with God's Word and the problem is always with us, then we must make sure that our perspective remains right, especially in times of trouble, right? Like we have to work hard to make sure our thinking is aligned with what is true when life gets Hard. So what is a right perspective on all of this? How are we to think about it? Well, friends, we must remember the fact that God's Word will never fail. His Word will never fail. Now, we could go all over the Scriptures to, to show you this. And what I want to do really quickly, and we're going to do it quickly, I'm going to flip through a number of verses. I've got to think about 10 or 11 verses here from the book of Isaiah. Just one, one Old Testament prophet. I want you to hear the language of confidence in the Word of God. Why God is speaking to His people, why the prophet is challenging the people to think certain ways, because the Lord has spoken it. I want you to hear the language of the prophet. Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 20, but if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. How can you be confident that trouble's coming if you refuse and rebel against the Lord? For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Isaiah 16 and verse 14, but now the Lord has spoken, saying in three years, like the years of a hired worker, the glory of Moab will be brought into contempt in spite of all his great multitude, and those who remain will be very few and feeble. What is he saying? You look at the nation of Moab right now, and you see all those people, and you see their success, and you think there's nothing that can defeat them. And he says, no, in three years' time, they're going to be nothing. And how can you be confident that's true? Because the Lord has spoken this. This is his word on the subject. 
Isaiah 21 and 17, and, and the remainder of the archers of the mighty men of the sons of Kedar will be few. How can you know they're going to be few? For the Lord, the God of Israel, has spoken. 22 and 25, in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, the peg that was fastened in a secure place will give way, and it will be cut down and fall, and the load that was on it will be cut off. Wow, he says, wait a second, you think you've made it secure? You think you've figured out a way that it's going to last? You think you've figured out a way to make things go? But it's not going to, and how do you know? When something fails you thought was secure, why does it happen? For the Lord has spoken. Wow. I don't know if it's challenging you like it's challenging me, but friends, hear me. Over and over again, we find this same kind of language. Chapter 24 and verse 3. The earth shall be utterly empty and utterly plundered. Why? For the Lord has spoken this word. Or 25 and 8. He will swallow up death forever and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of His people will He take away from all the earth For the Lord has spoken. Or 38 and 7, this shall be the sign to you from the Lord that the Lord will do this thing that He has promised. Or 40 and verse 5, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. Why? For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Or 58 and 14, then you shall take delight in the Lord and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father. Why? For the mouth of the Lord Lord has spoken. This is just a sampling, my friends, from one book of the way the Bible tells us to think about the Word of the Lord. Time and time again throughout the Scriptures, the Word reminds us that whatever the Lord speaks will come to pass. His word will never fail. His promises are sure. His truth is dependable. So why do we doubt so when difficult times arise? Why are we so prone to the struggle of soul that we all know so I want you to think this through, friends. The solution in times of difficulty is not to abandon the Word of God, the people of God, the things of God, so that we can give all of our attention to figuring life out on our own. Isn't that what happens? Trials come, and what do we do? We withdraw from all of the things we've been given, the means of grace, so that we can figure out life and hopefully hold it all together. But that's not the solution for the people of God when life gets hard. To pull away from the means of grace so we can figure it out for ourselves. No, hear me, friends. Rather, the solution in times of difficulty is to abandon our own way of thinking. To repent of our sinful responses to the trials of life and to submit ourselves fully to what God has said. That is how believers live believingly. And yet so often life gets hard and we push away from the very things God has given us to anchor us when life is hard. So I ask again, friends, when God speaks, do you listen? And the second question I would ask you again is this, when God works, are you surprised? 
When God works, are you surprised? Look back at our text again, verses 24 and 25. We, we see here these words. And they went and they woke him saying, Master, Master, we're perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging of the waves. And they ceased and there was a calm. He said to them, where's your faith? And they were afraid. And look, notice the next phrase. And they, they marveled, saying one to another, who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water? And they obey him. What can we glean, at least uh, from this text? I think at least a couple of, of thoughts, guiding principles maybe that should help us, what we might say in the stormy seas and the challenging times of life. The, the first thing I would give you from this section of the text is this. Friends, in times of trouble, you must run to the only one who can truly help. Who can truly help. Look, look again at verse 24. What, what does it tell us they did? They went and they woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. As the disciples ran to Christ, this was the proper reaction. Okay, let, let, let's, let's own that. This was the proper thing to do in their situation. They awoke him when they were overwhelmed by the storm. I don't know about you, though. I read the text and I get the sense this was probably not the first thing that they did. After all, friends, these were fishermen. They'd weather some storms. They knew what to do. We've been in this situation before. I, I may be, be reading between the lines a little bit, but I can almost see the disciples doing everything that they knew to do when the storm blew up before they ran to Christ. Because by the time they come to Him, they are scared for their lives. But winds blow up on fishermen all the time. They know how to turn the boat toward the waves. The bay of water to, to bring down the rigging, to throw things overboard, to lighten the ship, the bay of water out of the boat. They know what you do in the middle of a storm. And so do we. You get busier, right? You just you buckle down and you're going to make it happen. Hear, hear me. I mean, you, you and I, we, we, we run for solutions. We, we seek all kinds of counsel. We, 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 we want a second opinion from another doctor. We, we want all of this stuff. We know what to do when storms come. But it does seem in the text that when everything else had failed, they did run to Christ. And I need to ask this question, friends, in times of trouble, is God your first resource or your last resort? I mean, you and I have been saving for a rainy day, right? I mean, we, we know what to do when, when that bill comes because I've been saving for it. I'm ready. Do I write a check or do I pray first? We're the people of God. Do we live like it? Is God our first resource or our last resort? As you've already seen, Scripture requires that we believe when we come to Him, but, but, but this text shows us that the disciples were, were actually quite surprised. Listen, they were surprised when He did what they asked. 
So we have two principles, right? First principle, in times of trouble, you must run to the only one who can truly help. But secondly, in times of trouble, you must believe that he is who he claims to be. Look again at the language of the text. And they went to him and they said to him, Master, we're perishing. And he awoke and what did he do? He talked to the storm. This is amazing. Now the records, we actually hear words. Peace. Be still. Looking at a windstorm and telling it to be quiet. I've heard enough out of you. And the storm listened. It ceased. There was calm. I remember being in ministry in New Jersey years ago and We'd been doing some work on the building that our church had, and we'd been replacing a roof, and we had all kinds of junk out in the, in the dumpster in our parking lot, and we got the report that a nor'easter was on its way. And Think about what it's like when you get a report that a hurricane's actually going to make it this far from the coast, okay? We're talking about a storm, and I remember in the middle of the night hearing the sound that I dreaded. And it was a gust of wind catching the tarp on the top of our dumpster and ripping it loose so that you just hear this terrible flapping noise of a 40-foot tarp in the wind just blowing all over the place. This was about 2.30 in the morning. And I remember going outside thinking, how in the world am I going to wrangle this tarp? I remember going to one place that was still attached to the dumpster and having to work myself down to the end of it and starting to get it back over so that our junk didn't go into neighbors' houses and stuff as the wind was picking things up and blowing it around. And I'm, I'm thinking, is something going to fly into my eye or take off my head? Or, I mean, am I going to make it through this? And I'm trying to hold it. Is it going to blow me into the ocean and when it catches by the wind? And I, I remember just the fear of that moment. And I remember praying. God, would you just stop the wind long enough for me to tie this down? The whole time, mustering up all the strength I knew I needed because I was going to have to fight this thing to the very end. And no sooner had I gotten the words out of my heart than the first calm we'd heard all night long. And I had about 10 minutes to take all the straps and to tie it back down. And I remember being able to come back inside after tying down that tarp. Christy, I think, was out there helping me with it, too. (laughs) And I remember the marvel that we had. Because I had just asked the God of creation to tell the wind to be quiet. And in my heart of hearts, I still believed I was going to have to do it. Friends, I got a question. When we ask him to work, are we shocked when he does? Are we shocked when God is God? Over everything. The disciples were, keep reading, he said to them, where is your faith? I mean, here's the problem. What, 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 do you think I didn't notice? I didn't know? 
They were afraid and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this? Not, what has he done? Who is this guy? In fact, the old King James says, What manner of man is this? He's just a man like us. How do winds listen to him? Notice the problem was what they believed. Not that God could do, but about the one who was God before them. Who is this guy? He commands winds and water. And they obey. Friends, after all the miracles Christ had performed in their presence, it seems that the disciples still failed to believe that he was who he claimed to be. God in the flesh. Oh, oh, they they knew enough to run to him when they ran out of resources, but apparently they did not really believe that he could actually do what they asked. Before we get too hard on them, I think we need to acknowledge something. Friends, aren't we just like them so many times? Truth be told, when trouble comes and we begin to worry and fret, we, we prove that our hearts don't believe what we've claimed. We're really doubting that God is who He claims to be. The sovereign over all, and that includes me and you and us. If we're honest, we have to confess that we, we doubt that he, he loves us. And we doubt that He's good. We doubt that He's in control. We doubt that He knows what is best. And friends, hear me, when we doubt, when we doubt, there is no stability to our lives at all. You see, we think the problem is this one incident, but God tells us that when we doubt, it's our whole lives that are actually a problem. Just listen to some familiar words from James again. Just just think about it in light of what we're talking about. James writes this, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. Okay, you you need wisdom? Go ask God. And what do you know about God? He gives generously to all without reproach, and he will give it. That's glorious. But what's our problem? Verse 6. But let that one ask in faith with no, here's our word, doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea. Fitting metaphor, isn't it? It's like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person, the doubting person, must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He, the doubting one, is a double-minded man, unstable in this way. Is that what the Bible says? No. Unstable In all his ways. Not just this incident. Not just this scenario. 
but in all of life. Hear me, friends, when we, when we find doubt rising in our hearts, we must put it to death and run to our God believing He is who He says He is and He does what He says He'll do. Without doubting. Friends, you and I must come to believe that our God is who He claims to be and that His Word will not fail if we are ever to possess and then live out our faith as we ought. Hear me. In closing, what I want to do is this this morning. I want to return to something that we... We looked at a couple of weeks ago quickly as an introduction to a sermon. A few weeks ago, we visited Ken Collier's, what we called four stabilizing truths. Remember I mentioned those to you? I think it's fitting that we would end this sermon the way we started that sermon, as we talked about the sovereignty of God. When life is hard and we find ourselves tempted to doubt and to, 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 to race to every other solution and we find ourselves all over the map, what must we know and believe? Well, God's love for me is unchanging. Scripture is clear, friends, that God says to His people in Jeremiah 31 and verse 3, I have loved you with what kind of love? An everlasting love. My circumstances will not change His love for me. You read Romans chapter 8 down through that paragraph, verses 31 to 39, and you realize that nothing, absolutely nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And think about this, not even my sin changes His love for me. When did He begin loving you? Romans 5.8 but God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is staggering. God's love for me is unchanging. God's purpose for me is Christ-likeness. Paul wrote plainly about this in Romans chapter 8, verses 28 and 29. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are the called according to His purpose, God loves us. Those who love God, all things work together for good. What is that good? For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the first mortal among many brothers." Study both of those verses, not just the first. You find that the good of verse 28 is to conform me to the image of His Son, verse 29. The good He is working in everything is to make me like Jesus. It doesn't mean that the outcome of the scenario I'm facing, the difficulty I'm facing, has to be exactly as I want it to be because the outcome is going to be as He intends and everything He brings into my life is intended for the good of making me like Jesus. I've got to ask, is that good to you? Or is only giving you what you want good? His good 
is to make us like Christ. The rest of Scripture supports that understanding. John chapter, 1 John chapter 2, verse 6, whoever says that he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked, to be like Jesus. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 3, and everyone who has this, this hopes in him, in, in him purifies himself as he, Jesus, is pure. You, you study the Scriptures, you find this is what God is doing. He is making His own like His Son. So, God's love for me is unchanging. God's purpose for me is Christ-likeness. In light of this morning, this one makes perfect sense. God's word to me is the final right answer. Paul was unmistakably clear on this point. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. You know the first verse well. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for, and for training in righteousness. To what end? Why such a glorious book? Why such glorious truth? What does he do with his book? That the man of God may be complete, equipped for most good things. No. For every good work. This is what God's Word does in the life of His people. The psalmist put it this way simply in Psalm 119 and 105, your Word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. You show me how to walk. So, God's love for me is unchanging. God's purpose for me is Christ-likeness. God's word to me is the final right answer. And finally, friends, God's grace for me is sufficient. It's sufficient. In the midst of his need, in the midst of his trial, in the midst of his pain and his difficulty and discouragement, God promised the Apostle Paul sufficient grace. You know the language of 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul wrote, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Can we just pause for a moment and demonstrate the fact that even the trial given by God was given for a sanctifying purpose? Wow, that's grace. Paul, knowing the trial, Pleaded three times, verse 8, with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. Oh God, take this away. Oh God, take this away. Please take this away. But God said to him, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. I've got a question, friends. In the midst of trials, are promises enough for you? Because God did not change the circumstance. God just promised him sufficient grace. And what was Paul's response in the midst of the ongoing trial to the promise? Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ then, I am content with weaknesses, 
insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I I don't know about you. I can't speak for each of you. I know the pull of my own heart, and I know the example in Scripture of God's people historically. But until God does what we ask, often we ask, and then when He doesn't do it, He just promises, we grumble. And we fight. And we fuss. In fact, James warns about those who ask and don't get it, so they do what they have to, including all things like murder, to get what they want. Wow. That's the fallen heart. Paul asked, and he asked, and he asked, and God promised, and Paul was content with the promise of God. I want you to let those words of comfort and encouragement sink down down deep into your soul, friends. When trials come, and they do, we're praying for some right now. People in our congregation going through deep waters. There are things that are difficult and hard, and I'm sure waters will continue to rise. Waves will continue to roll. Winds will continue to blow. But friends, regardless of the waves that rise and the winds that blow and the storms that rage in our lives, even when it seems to come upon us suddenly and unexpectedly like the storms the disciples faced that night as the Lord slept in the back of the boat, we must be confident that our Lord remains sovereign. And friends, we also must believe that He is ever faithful to His Word and to His own When life is hard, and when difficulties come, it's far too easy for us to find our hearts doubting. Friends, I want to challenge us as a people who say the right things, make the right claims, rally around the right truth. All right. When life is hard, And it gets harder. Will we live out what we claim to believe? And to that end, I want to pray for us this morning. Father, you are good. And you are faithful. Your word is true. Our hearts are fickle. At times faithless, often doubting. And so we plead, as we've been called to, before your throne of grace in time of need, that you would supply the help we are desperate for. So, Father, would you give us your grace? Like the father who came to Christ doubting, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, we cry. And we ask that you would be glorified in your own 
as you give us your word and you keep your promises. And we'll thank you as we trust you. In his name we pray. Amen.